Good morning. It's nice to be with you. Um, if, uh, if you have been going to church for a long time, you've probably caught on by now, but if you haven't, I'll let you in on a little secret. The first Sunday after the 4th of July, the lead pastor never speaks. So they, I don't know why that is. They, it's my favorite Sunday, but they'll usually bring in a guest speaker or have an associate pastor or something speak. But anyways, I'm happy to be here uh, sharing with you guys today. My name is Richard, and uh, like Tyler said, I, uh, I, I lead one of our missional partners here in Arizona called Teach One to Lead One. Um, and I would love for you to come have free ice cream with us too. But uh, we've been going through this series called Campfire Stories. And these are basically standalone stories that uh, are sometimes kind of strange or different. Maybe you haven't heard of them. They're not quite as popular. Uh, if you grew up going to Sunday school, these aren't the types of stories that typically get on the flannel boards, if you remember how that works. So uh, today is the last day of the series. And uh, we, so we have another non-flannel board story to share with you today. And um, when I walked into the Desert City office and we looked at the board and it had the, uh, the list of all the different biblical stories that they wanted to do for the series, I saw uh, the story of Ehud and I went, oh, I love that story. It's one of my favorite stories. I want to do that one. In fact, I've already got a, a sermon written for that. And they go, okay, Richard's going to do Ehud. Yeah, perfect. And then I started thinking, well... I used to be a youth pastor, and the sermon was designed for middle school students, because um, sixth graders really like this story. Uh, and I was like, well, I guess I could probably revamp it a little bit, because this is adult. We're adults, right? We're adults. Um, and so I started reading through the story and preparing, and I realized, nope, I can't revamp it. This, this story uh, is going to stay very much appealing to middle schoolers. So... Hang with me today. Bear with me. Um, there may be some silly jokes and some giggling and maybe some gross parts of the story, but it is in the Bible, and this is a campfire story. So we are going to turn to Judges, the book of Judges in the Old Testament, chapter 3 to be exact. If you have a Bible or an app, please open to theirs. You can follow along and see that I'm not making this up. This is actually in the Bible. Now, first, I want to give you a little background to the book of Judges. Um, first of all, when, when we say Judges, we don't mean uh, the, the old man in the black robe with the white curly wig and a, and a wooden hammer. Um, that's not the type of judge. Okay, middle schoolers, remember, middle schoolers, okay? So I thought that growing up. And I was like, why is this about, you know, those types of judges? It's not about that. When we say judge in the Old Testament, what we actually mean is a deliverer or a leader. God would, God would send a, a deliverer to the people to deliver them from oppression. So in this instance, in the Old Testament, we're talking about judges. We're talking about different leaders who come and free the Israelites from oppression. So no black robe, white curly wig, hammer. Okay. okay, other background. Uh, we see that there's a cycle that happens in the book of Judges over and over and over again. And I don't know if you can read this or not, but basically you have Israel who, if you remember back, they were slaves to Egypt. Moses comes. He says, let my people go. They go. They cross the Red Sea. You got the plagues, all that kind of stuff. And then they're in the wilderness. And then after that, uh, they defeat some evil nations, and then they're in the promised land. And that's kind of where we're at now. And so they're, they're serving the Lord. They love the Lord who took care of them and, and freed them. Um, but you know what? Then they kind of get used to it, and they fall into sin and idolatry. And when that happens, 
um, Israel becomes enslaved to another evil nation. And that's no fun. And that goes on for years, and they get tired of it. So eventually they cry out to the Lord for help. And then God hears that, and he sends a judge. He raises up a judge to send them to deliver them into freedom. And then Israel's delivered, yay, and they serve the Lord again. And then it starts all over again. And they start to turn their back on God. Um, they lose their ways. In fact, it says that sometimes uh, they, the, their children even didn't, didn't even know their ancestors or how God delivered them from Egypt, uh, which is a pretty big part of their nation's history. So they start to sin, and then they get enslaved by another evil king. They cry out to God. God sends a judge. They're freed. They live in peace and freedom. They serve God, and then we rinse and repeat. And this goes on over and over over a span of a few hundred years in the book of Judges. So this judge that we're talking about today, his name is Ehud. Is the second judge that we read about in this, in this book. Um, and so we're, we're in this pattern, and so now you're kind of caught up, and now we're going to work through this really interesting and fun passage. So verse 12, Judges 3, verse 12. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, which is actually the same city as Jericho. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Jerah the Benjamite. That's kind of interesting. We got any lefties in the room today? Oh, yes. All right. Hey, today is for you. This is your special day. Our south paws out there. Okay. So Ehud's a left-handed man. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. Also kind of an interesting note. Do we have any? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> T- middle schoolers, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, after Ehud, by the way, yeah, never mind. Okay. <laughs> after he, Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king said, Quiet. And all his attendants left him. And this is as far back as we can trace that the the phrase, secret secrets are no fun unless they are for everyone, uh, took place originally. So uh, you'll see why in a minute. Middle school, come on. It's a middle school joke, come on. (laughs) Verse 20, Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. And as the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand and drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Ew. Even the handle sank in after the blade. Ew. Which came out his back. Oh, Gross. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Ugh. Middle school, come on. Then Ehud went out to the porch 
he shut the doors of the upper room behind him and he locked them. After Ehud, or, sorry, after he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, and that's my favorite part, they said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. And they waited, okay, so that means he, they think he's going to the bathroom. They waited, they waited to the point of embarrassment, which raises the question, how long is the point of embarrassment? <laughs> is it 30 minutes? Is it an hour? Or is it when your five-year-old child comes and knocks on the door to ask if you're okay? <sighs> that hasn't happened to me, by the way. So, <laughs> uh, but when he did not, uh, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and they unlocked him, and there they saw their Lord falling to the floor, dead. And while they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols, who could not stop him, by the way. He passed by the idols and escaped to Syrah. And when he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. And so they followed him down, and taking possessions of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, they allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong, and not a man escaped. And that day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Wow. It's kind of a fun story, right? And what's crazy about this, if it, so he's the second judge in this book. The third one, Shamgar, comes right after it. And Shamgar only gets one verse. So you have this really intricate story with details. And then Shamgar, it says in verse 31, After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, he too saved Israel. And that's it. It moves on. <laughs> like, what's going on? What, why, I want to know about the ox goad. some reason, Ehud got this story with like very... Very graphic details. The author put that in there for some reason. And then Shamgar is like, what? One verse doesn't make sense. Why is this story in the Bible? Why did they think it's important to throw this in there and tell us all these details? It's a great question. You know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, the story's a little out there, right? Um, especially for us living in 2019 in, in the U.S. of A. Like, we read the story and we're like, this is very different. But the story wasn't actually written for, um, for us. I mean, it kind of was, but it was written to a different audience. You know, the Israelites are reading this and studying their history. So today, as we look at this passage and, and we try to unpack it and see why it's in the Bible and what we can take away from it, um, I want to look through this with a few different perspectives uh, the first one is the broader perspective of, of God, God's relationship with humanity over the history of, of, of mankind. So, you know, thousands of years, how God's interacting with his people, the story that's developing um, as God is pursuing his people and people keep turning their back to God. And eventually, you know, the story goes on and we have Jesus and we have the, the time of the church and it brings us to today. I want that perspective. And then I also want the more specific perspective of um, not just the, the culture of the time, the Israelites as they're reading the story, but for us too. Like, how does this intertwine with who we are today and, and how we're living our life and how we're approaching our relationship with God? So as we unpack these things, I want you to think about those things. The bigger, broader perspective of, of God's relationship to mankind, 
over the history of mankind, and then also the, the specific individual perspective that involves you and I and the people of the time. And when we do that, there's, there's four things that I, I kind of realized that I wanted to share about today. This story, the first one is this, this story is, is really about a, a, a story of, of sin and consequences. Sin and consequences. And not just this story, but the book of Judges overall is kind of about sin and consequences. You see, the Israelites, like I said earlier, they were in a good place. They were in the promised land. And, and things should have been peachy for them. Things should have been peaceful if they had just kept serving God and kept that relationship and that perspective. But what happens is they start to forget about what God's done for them. And they turn their back on God and they turn to idolatry and sin and, and evil. And, and, it, and it, it goes on to the point where it gets so bad, like I said earlier, even the kids that they were raising up didn't know who their ancestors were. And you can see how that is bad for the nation. Um, in fact, it, at one point in, in Judges, it says that each or everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did as they saw fit. Yikes. Like that's kind of scary, and it kind of sounds like us today, right? Like, I, this is right for me, and if that's not right for you, that's okay. Just everyone do what they think is right in their own eyes, and I'll do my thing, you do your thing. Do you guys see that in our country today, in our culture? Very much so, and it's almost like that's being pushed on, like there's no, there's no moral authority, there's no values that we can all agree on. It's like, you do what's right for you, I'll do what's right for me. And we see it becomes really destructive for, for our nation here, for Israel and for their community. And because of that, the consequences in that time, because of the consequences where they became oppressed by an evil king. In this story, it's, it's Eglon, the fat king from Moab. Um, they became oppressed and evil takes over and there's fighting. There's no peace. There's fighting between uh, them and, and the country that's oppressing them. And eventually, as we go on later in Judges, Israel starts fighting with themselves. And there's a civil war that almost knocks out one of the tribes of Israel. Things should have been good, but they weren't. So did, did God punish them? Or were these kind of consequences of their own selfish choices? Well, I think the answer is like, yeah, kind of both. Kind of both. It, it's almost as if God, who created the universe who created life and designed life to be lived a certain way, and he, that life is to be good for people. He wants people to have a good life. He gave us the instructions for how that life should be lived. You call them rules, or we call them laws, or commands, or values, whatever you want to call them, but the, the reality is God designed life to be lived a certain way. He gives that to us, not because he wants to squelch our joy, and ruin our fun, he does that because he knows if we follow those things, our life will be full of peace and freedom and love, and it gets better that way. And it's almost as if he's saying, look, here's how to do it the right way, and if you follow it, it'll be good, and if you don't, it won't. There's consequences for your choices. And we know that in here. We teach that to our kids, and we were taught that there's consequences for your, for your choices. Yet for thousands of years, we are here kind of going through that same cycle that the, that the Israelites were doing. We're, we're doing good. We're, things are peachy. We feel like we're in a good place in relation to God. And then all of a sudden, we kind of stray off from that. And we start living our own way, what seems right in our eyes. And because of that, there's consequences to our choices. 
And it gets to a point where it can get so bad where we finally go, oh, God, please help me. And he comes and he forgives and there's grace and it starts that whole cycle over. I like to think of it as um, uh, like an engineer who, like a, who's designing a jet to fly, which is pretty amazing, right? You've got these thousands and thousands of pounds of metal that somehow flies through the air. And it's kind of terrifying when you think about it. But it, it, it's actually real, pretty safe, right? It's safer than driving. But if the engineer, um, it, excuse me, if the pilot disregarded the instructions the engineer gave when they're learning to be a pilot, and they said, you know what? I know you designed the plane to be this way, and you said this is how it should be operated and flown. And the pilot said, I think it would be better this way, and I'm going to do it this way. We would all go, that's crazy. I'm never getting on that plane with you. Because that's destructive, and it's harmful, and it's just flat out dumb. Yet we tend to do that individually and corporately. God gave us the instruction manual, and we say, I think I want to do it my way. That's when we get into trouble. But the good news is the story is not just about sin and consequences. The story is about faithfulness and loving kindness, which is kind of weird to, to say because you think through the story and what just happened with like, you know, all the gross details and stuff. And you're like, this is a story of, of faithfulness and loving kindness. It absolutely is. Ehud um, literally means give, give, giving praise, gives praise. That's his name. That's what it translates as, gives praise. Notice it's interesting. It's not deserves praise. It gives praise. You see, Ehud was not the hero in the story. God is the hero in the story. And through Ehud's life, he gives praise to God because God is the ultimate deliverer. And not just Ehud, but we could say that about any biblical hero, especially in the Old Testament. We, we call them heroes, and, and in a way they are, but ultimately God is the hero. And it's God who heard his people cry out, and he listened to it, and he responded to it, and he delivered them from oppression, and he gave them freedom, and he showed them mercy. God is the hero of the story. It's an act of his loving kindness and his faithfulness to his people. God's the one that delivered the people. He gave them Ehud. He orchestrated it all to come together. And here's the really interesting thing. There's a third thing I wanted to share. When God brings a person to lead the people through trials and to triumph, he usually calls on a person who's uniquely qualified to go accomplish the mission. Uniquely qualified. I want to focus on that. It's interesting that Ehud was a left-handed man. So we kind of cheered. We had some lefties that cheered, and it's kind of funny. Back in the day, and this time, if you were left-handed, society viewed that as a handicap. Like, something's wrong with you. Like, why are you using your wrong hand? <laughs> you need to use your right hand. But they were left-handed. Something was wrong. That's a, a weakness to them. Of course, we know that's not true, but back then, that's how society viewed it. But a right-handed person could not have accomplished this task that Ehud did because when Ehud entered into the palace, because he was left-handed, and do this backwards, left-handed, he put his sword on his right hip. A right-handed person is going to put their sword on the left hip because it's, that's how you quickly get it. You know, it's kind of awkward to, you know, you got to go across and it's quick and then you're ready for battle. And so when Ehud walked into the palace, the guards you know, they're good guards. They want to make sure that he's not carrying a weapon. So they pat down his right hip. 
his left hip, sorry, because they assume he's a right-handed man. After all, a left-handed person wouldn't be the one who's the leader and delivering this tribute to the king. They don't even check the right hip. But when he gets up there and he tells the king there's a secret message and they all go away, it's the perfect time God orchestrated that moment to be perfect for, for Ehud to accomplish the task at hand and the mission that God called him to do. Isn't that crazy? I, I, I think in the broader story, going back to the, this big over, overview of God's relationship to mankind, we see God call over and over uniquely qualified people to be leaders of nations and to do incredible things. And, um, and, and some of these unique factors about them are oftentimes like negative things or weaknesses or something's wrong, like a flaw in their character or something like that. And God uses those despite the individual. And, and sometimes he uses those unique characteristics to accomplish what he's wanting to accomplish, just like he did with Ehud. But in the specific story, I believe that for you and for me in our specific stories, within the broader sense, that God sends somebody who's uniquely qualified to be the deliverer for you and for me that can lead us into a life of freedom and peace. And if you're thinking through that, you probably know there's someone in your life who was that person for you. Connected the dots. Maybe someone who um, sat down with you and had these conversations or just was there for you and, I don't know, answered questions or brought you to church or something like that. There's somebody in your life that was uniquely qualified to be that leader for you. And I also believe that God has given you and God has given me individual unique gifts that make us uniquely qualified to be that person for somebody else or a group of people. So I ask, what is it about you that's unique? Maybe it's something that you don't like about yourself. Maybe it's something you love about yourself, something that, that is unique about you that makes you qualified to go be a leader that can, that can deliver people into hope and peace and freedom. I think we all have it. I know for me, in my story, um, as I kind, of, I kind of figured this out, and it's a makeup of how we're wired and maybe life experiences and, and timing. And I think all these things get orchestrated together for that moment when God taps you on the shoulder and, and calls you to do something. And you have the chance to say yes or you have a chance to ignore it and keep going on with something else. For me, about six years ago, um, I was up in Washington State. Uh, as a youth pastor up there, and I was volunteering with this organization called Teach One to Lead One. Some of you guys are involved in that. Some of you know, know what it is. It's a mentoring program for kids who are at risk. And I was not an at-risk kid. I was very fortunate. I grew up in a, in a very healthy home, and in fact, my parents surrounded me with a ton of healthy adults who poured into me and who loved me and cared about me and, and were there for me and guided me along the way. And as I started volunteering, with these at-risk kids, my heart grew for them, and my passion grew for them, and I was trying to figure out, like, what is this? I, this wasn't me. A lot of times you hear, like, those speakers who are like, I was that kid, and that's why I do this now. That wasn't me. I didn't have that crazy testimony of rebellion and 
you know, get into all these sorts of things that I shouldn't. I mean, I did, but not like ones we hear that would go, wow, that's amazing. Um, and, and I grew a passion for these kids to the point where I started feeling nudged to come back home to Arizona and start this organization here. It did not exist here. It started from scratch. And I was going, what is going on? So I started talking to people, some of my own mentors. And one, one guy encouraged me to write down everything um, that makes me uniquely qualified to go start this chapter of the nonprofit in Arizona during this time, six years ago. It was like one of the best things I could have ever done for myself. And I, I started thinking, okay, I, I'm not an at-risk kid, but I had a ton of mentors in my life. And, and I, I grew up in, in a, I'm a, Jared and I are PKs, uh, pastor kids, and so I grew up in the, in the church, and we have like this really wide network of, of churches that we're connected to, and pastors who could get behind something like this. And um, I had a lot of experience growing up, even as a kid, with startups, planting churches, or starting, you know, being on a, a, a sports team that was basically starting from scratch, or... Uh, youth groups, or, you know, different things, various things where I was part of a startup and, a, and part of the leadership, even as a kid. And I went, oh, I know how this is done. I know what it takes to do, to do something like this. I know how hard it can be. And I know that you have to have that whatever it takes mindset. I had this incredible circle of friends from a school that my parents put me in. Uh, it's a small school called Scottsdale Christian Academy, but it is just a huge family and circles of people um, that are missionally minded and want to do good in the community. I started realizing um, the way I'm wired, and I think I get this from my mom, is I'm, I'm a networker. I like to connect dots and connect people to each other. And I like to meet like anybody and everybody. And if there's ever anyone you want to introduce me to, I'd love to meet them. Um, that's just how I am. Um, I'm a visionary. I can see things and I can communicate it to people and I can motivate people to get involved. And I'm realizing all these things and, and, and the... And the Timing of it all, we are in a place in history, in our nation, where the things we're seeing with our schools are heartbreaking, with shootings and suicides and depression and dropouts and, and teen pregnancy and, and rape and aggravated assault. And I mean, the list goes on. And schools are freaking out and going, we need help. We are in a crisis. And people in the community are going, oh, my goodness, what do we do? Like, this keeps getting worse and worse. And I see all these things come together, and I realize that God, in this moment, six years ago, had made me uniquely qualified to go start this movement in Phoenix, Arizona. And it was, it was like, whoa, of course, of course I'm doing this. I don't think anyone else could. Other, other people could, but I was on the, you know, <clears throat> God, was, God was speaking to me. So um, that was six years ago. We've almost mentored 1,300 kids in six years. And I tell you that to say, don't look at me. I'm not the hero. God is the hero of this story. And there's this, this need in the community, and God wants to reach these kids. And he brought someone along, me, who's uniquely qualified to get this going and bring people together to go help these kids. And God's the story. Sorry, God's the hero of the story. And, it, and although I'm the point leader for it in Arizona, it's only successful because God has given Moab into our hands. He is the one who's opening doors and he's showing favor and he's moving people to get involved. 
all I have to do is simply put my yes on the table. And maybe I'm bold enough or maybe I'm just naive enough to say yes and go for it anyways. But here I am. And that's, that's my story. And I think that each one of you has a story like that too. Where God has created you to be uniquely qualified to be that leader for somebody else's life. Maybe it's one person. Maybe it's a family. Maybe it's a large group of people. I don't know. But based on your past experiences, how you're wired, the people in your life, you are uniquely qualified to go out and lead people into a life of freedom and peace. Here's the last thing. That this story is pretty, pretty cool. This story foreshadows the perfect deliverer. So Ehud is the deliverer for the Israelites. He was uniquely qualified to do that. But this story, about a thousand years before the time of Jesus, was foreshadowing the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, who is the ultimate perfect deliverer that would come and would, would, would save anybody who wanted to be saved and deliver them into a life of freedom and peace. And it, and it looked very different. This is, we can see this in, with 2020 hindsight now. The, the Israelites had this expectation of the Messiah coming, who was going to be this warrior king. He was going to ride in on this war horse, and he was going to conquer the other nations, and it was going to give them political freedom and religious freedom, and they would be like the nation of the world. But Jesus came, born in a manger, rode in on a donkey, not a war horse, and live this life of, of sacrifice and love. And he conquered sin and he conquered death so that we, a couple thousand years later, can have a life of freedom and a life of peace. And here's the real kicker. Jesus was sent by God to do this because Jesus was uniquely qualified to be the atoning sacrifice for you and me. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, God made him who had no sin, which is a pretty incredible line, he made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He knew no sin. He was uniquely qualified to pay that debt for us. He's the only one who could. Nobody else could. Incredible. So as we move into a time of communion, we do this every week. We take the bread, we take the cup, and Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And the bread represents the broken body that you know, Jesus was, was beaten and hung on the cross and broken to pieces. And, and the cup represents the blood that was shed for us on the cross. And I, and I want you... As we reflect with the song and as we take communion, I want you to think, think about Jesus on the cross and like a sponge absorbs all the sin from everyone that wants it. All the sin, all of my sin, all of your sin and, and nails it to the cross. One of my favorite hymns and lyrics is from It Is Well. And it says, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more.
Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. God, as we reflect on the work that you did on the cross for us, in a way that only you could, God, took our sin, conquered it, took it to the grave, and then rose above it so that we can have a life of freedom and a life of peace, an eternal life that goes beyond this world. Thank you that you've given that that to us so that we can stop this cycle of, of sinning and turning our back on you and you having to cry out to you. You forgive us and you give us grace and you wipe it clean. And we praise you for that.